Welcome to Hunter and Craft Radio. What's up guys? Evan Lewis here with another episode of Hunter and Craft Radio. On this episode, I'm joined by Daniel Jackson, aka Jacko. Jacko is a former professional Aussie Rules footballer out of Melbourne, Australia. He played 11 years in the AFL for the Richmond Tigers, and he's the first professional athlete we've ever had on this show. Jacko shares a lot of great insights into what his career was like as a pro footballer, his best lessons on leadership, team design, winning cultures, and also some great thoughts on travel and productivity. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Jacko's hilarious. Here he is. Today I'm joined by my good friend Dan Jackson, aka Jacko. What's going on, brother? How are you? Yeah, I am very well, my friend. A bit cold, but uh, I'm learning to deal with it. Pretty excited. You are the inaugural Aussie on this show. Uh, great to have you, my friend. This is going to be a really fun chat. Um, lots of great stuff for us to go through today. But for those listeners who haven't had the distinct pleasure of meeting you, um, I'd love if you could just start with a little bit of background on you know, uh, what you're all about, where you grew up, and you know what your career uh, has led you to so far. Cool. Well, uh, maybe we start chronologically. Born in Australia, raised in Australia. That's probably the, the fundamentals. Um, <laughs> but the reason we're here today, I suppose, is my career back home, which ended about 18 months ago. I was a professional Australian rules footballer, also known as Aussie rules to most people around the world. Um, for people who think that it's rugby, it is not. It's the one that uh, we wear the, the tank tops, so no sleeves, the little shorts, and we run a hell of a long way. So... I was drafted into the professional league. My team was the Richmond Tigers in 2003 as a 17-year-old and subsequently played 11 seasons, retired at the end of 2014 when I was a bit too beat up to go anymore. Um, And then since moved to Canada with my lovely girlfriend, um, it was a lot of fun in the summer. And as I said, I'm gritting my teeth now to bear through the winter like everyone else. That's, (laughs) That's where we are today. You know, it's pretty funny. So we've known each other only for a couple months, but, uh, you know, you've gotten integrated into our friend group. And I don't think a lot of us really realize, but as I was, I was, you know, preparing for this interview and looking back at some of your YouTube videos, I mean, I've said to people, you're like the, you know, the Sidney Crosby of the No, it's awesome, man. I mean, I'll, we'll definitely uh, looking forward to linking to some of your uh, some of your highlights and videos in the in the post, but yeah, a lot of good stuff for us to go through today. Obviously, being a professional athlete, a lot of great lessons there in terms of leadership, building, you know, winning teams and winning cultures. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the parallels between business and professional sports. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe if you want to just give us, you know, some of the some of the key highlights of of your career, maybe break down. I guess you got drafted at seventeen. Like walk us through kind of the the early years of your career and um, you know getting started. I know you had uh, some good insights on you know, getting your footing, dealing with pressure early days, that type of thing. Sure, uh, I guess also as a bit more background to what we're dealing with here, Australian rules football in Melbourne is like hockey in Toronto in Canada. It's it's a religion, and we have the the league is comprised of eighteen teams across Australia, um, but in my city alone in Melbourne there are ten teams. That's the founding. Um, city where the game started wow. 150 years ago. Like, this is our game's older than soccer, and uh, the people the people are, are absolutely crazy about it. So uh, if that gives you any kind of perspective, well, that's what we're dealing with. Oh, that's why I had to flee. Um, <laughs> so how many people would be at, a, at any given Richmond Tigers game? 
So our average crowd I know last year was 51,000. That's okay. average over a 22-week season. Uh, and I played in front of crowds of 96,000, 98,000 at the MCG. Um, it's loud. It's like playing in front of the Coliseum if you're a gladiator. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 the game is on every paper, front and back page, talk show, radio, um, TV, all that kind of stuff. So hopefully that paints the picture. But the reason I say that is, as a 17-year-old boy, just before I got drafted, I only played football because I just loved playing with my mates. I'd started late. I was always competitive and athletic, but I never aspired to be a professional. And then one day I rocked up home from school. I'd been at athletics training or something, 7.30 at night. My parents said, oh, we want to talk to you. I was like, oh, geez, I'm in some trouble here. It's always a bad sign. <laughs> and uh, they said, no, no, no. We, uh, we actually had an interesting conversation with the Richmond, Fo- Richmond Football Club. And they've said that they'd like to uh, like you to nominate for the draft because they want to draft you. And I said, well, but we discussed this a few months beforehand. I had my year 12, our final year studies at high school the following year, and that was my priority. And they uh, they said, yeah, the, the club understands that. They're happy to let you go to school, but they're happy to draft you now, and you just fit footy in where, uh, where you can. Hmm. And so you'd think most 17-year-olds would absolutely jump at that opportunity. But for me, it was this daunting decision, trying to work out if that's even what I, I wanted to do in life. So I already, st- you know, I started my career with this trepidation about whether I wanted to be there. But my, my best mate gave me some advice because I had less than 24 hours to decide about this draft application. Chatted with him through it all and he, he didn't say much, he just listened. At the end he said, uh, he said, Jacko, it sounds like you've got a lot more to gain than you have to lose. And on that principle and that premise, I was like, you know what, stuff it, he's right. I'm just going to have a crack at this. But that was how my career started. The first few years I found really, really hard, fitting in an older person environment, 17, 18 years old. Um, my, my skill level was not particularly good. My understanding of the game wasn't very good. I was just athletic and competitive. Um, so whilst I could compete, I just I certainly wasn't excelling or improving dramatically, and that was really, really stressful. I had a lot of ups and downs early days, injury and stuff, but in the end, it taught me a lot of lessons that then later on carried through and made me a lot stronger player in the tail end of my career because I'd have to do it the hard way early, and I think that was probably my greatest learning point early. Did you always play the same position? I know you said you were kind of a lockdown or shutdown player. Were you always that same position? No, funnily enough, that was something that I learned early. When you first start in a, in a professional sport, maybe even at any sports level, you don't have a foothold. You're starting. And so coaches will often throw young players into different positions to help them find where they belong. The problem with that is success comes from doing the same things again and again well. It's, yeah. you know, we'll talk about that later on, about having the right habits. If you're not left anywhere to develop and you're constantly changed, you can't get any consistency or continuity. It's very hard to develop those winning habits to become great. So early days, I found it really hard. I'd play midfield, I'd play forward, I'd play back, I'd be on the wing, I'd get small amounts of game time, and I really wasn't getting anywhere. And then finally, one day, they realized, well, my key skills were athletic ability, I could run like the wind, and I'd love to scrap. I'm happy to fight. I was one of those guys, I don't know enough hockey, but I'm one of those guys that you hated to watch on the opposition team because he was scragging your team, your favorite player. <laughs> and so they put me on as a, as, a, as a shutdown player. And that's all I did. I followed around the best players in the AFL, stopping them from having an influence. But what it did is it gave me a goal and I'm very much sort of process driven. I knew exactly what my goal was and I knew how to achieve it. It was all about work rate, which played to my strength. But what I didn't pick up early days was that it was teaching me how to be a better player. So by playing on the best, I became a lot better. And so once I got that consistency and continuity and that exposure to what the elite players can do, that's when I finally started to make my own mark. And then ended up finishing as a midfielder in my own right. 
and for, um, there's no real correlation to hockey, but to soccer, that's like a midfielder in soccer. And we would run upwards of 15 kilometers a game in a two hour game. Like you got to run and work hard. So <laughs> it's a grinding position and that suited me as well. But uh, it, it certainly took years. Between 2004 and 2008, I hardly did anything. I um, was always told I needed to get better. But finally in 2009, I turned it around and played every game, came runner up in our club MVP, um, you know, finally started to earn some respect. So it was a five year out of 11 year career before I actually really felt like I got anywhere. So there was a lot of a lot of grinding it out. Hmm. Let's talk about your uh, that the MVP season. What do you call it? The the best in Paris, I guess. So let's one. let's talk about that season and kind of some of the best things that you think led to your success in that year. Yeah. So 2013, my second last season. I again, I had another consistent year. Played every game. Um, had was confident. And ended up winning our, yeah, our club MVP, as, and as you said, Evo, best and fairest. <laughs> but I guess to put that into context and what that meant to me, I have to go back a few years. So I just was chatting about 2009 being a good year. I went into 2010 feeling really confident. I'd finally taken that step up. I was earning respect, which is something that's really uh, valuable to me. I don't want to be the star player, but I always want to be respected. And um, I prided myself on doing the little things and the hard work to earn that respect. So finally that was coming. And um, 2010 started really well. But then I, I hit a rough patch, and I don't even know why, but um, I kept getting suspended. So in hockey, you get sin-binned, and that's your penance <laughs> to pay. In our game, you get to play the game out, but they send you to the tribunal on a Tuesday night to defend your actions, and you never win. You're in a suit, you're getting um, hit up from a QC or a barrister about why you um, hit some guy, or hit one of him in some cases. And so I kept getting caught for these things. I was having these really bad reactions. And it could be part because they put more cameras in these stadiums and they were seeing things that, of, that I did because I was scrapping with the other players <laughs> a lot that they never used to. Or maybe I just, for whatever reason, I'd, I'd taken my intensity too far. But anyway, I, I kept missing games, which killed my continuity. And again, I'll always come back to that. It's, it's continuity and good habits that will lead you to be successful. And so it really started to impact my play. And I kept getting injured. I had developed chronic hamstring tendonitis. So for 2011 and 12, that lack of continuity, the struggles with form because I was in and out of the side with injury, a, f- a few more suspensions. I was by 2012, I was really down and out to the point that I I was struggling to go to footy in the mornings. I I hated being there. You know, I'd always do the hard work because that's that's I knew I had to do that, but I really wasn't enjoying myself to the point in halfway through the 2012 season, I had a mentor and I, I had learned early days that to be successful, you need to have a good team around you. So I'd have people that would help me with football, with life, with um, my study had finished, so my business, um, whatever I might have been doing. And this guy was actually sort of a business mentor. And he asked me to have lunch with him in the city that we call downtown. Sorry, you call downtown. <laughs> and um, I was sitting in this cafe, lunchtime, suits everywhere. And this mentor of mine could see that I was really struggling halfway through the season or three quarters. And he said, um, he goes, Dan, what's wrong? You all right? I said, yeah, no, I'm fine. And he asked again. And I sat there for a while and I couldn't speak. And then I burst into tears in front of this guy in all these suits. And I looked up at him and I said, mate, I can't do this anymore. I've got nothing more to give. I'm, I'm, my body's stuffed. My mind's wrecked. I, I emotionally, I'm just drained. I, I don't think I can play anymore. And he you know, settled me down and we chatted for a bit more. And eventually he said, you know what? If that's the case, that's fine. He goes, but you get to go out on your terms. He goes, you don't leave when you're on the bottom. You've got to fight back and then you can walk away. So I was like, right, okay, I'm going back to what I do best. And I started working harder. I'd go to the gym, extra sessions at night time. I'd be doing extra recovery in the mornings, more running sessions. I took up more boxing, anything to get fitter and stronger because that was what made me a decent player. Mm -hmm. And slowly I gradually started to gain some form. But 
over the, the off season of end of 2012, I was still sort of dragging my heels and um, I was like, fine. If I'm going to continue to do this, I'm going to enjoy it. So my mindset became everything I do, everything I want to do, I'm going to do. If that means I want to have more beers on a weekend, I'll do that. If I want to do more training, I'll do that. If I want to see my friends, I'll do that. But it's going to be, everything's going to be about fun. So footy to me was no longer a job. It was just, I'm going to have a good attitude to it. So I started this season, didn't care less really about what happened. If I wasn't enjoying it, I was going to retire. And funnily enough, every week I kept playing better and better. Still working hard, but I was having fun. And so I, was, I just couldn't believe it. I was thinking, why now that I care so much less than I used to, am I succeeding so much more than I used to? And that pattern just played on to the end of the year. I played every game, no injuries, no suspensions, consistent good footy and won the, my first MVP. I think I was the equal oldest player to have ever done it. So <laughs> that's a long answer, I know, but it sort of paints the picture how that came about. Um, and then finally 12 months later, I was retired. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about, we want to skip to um, actually the, the kind of the personal wellness and productivity thing, because I think that ties to it a lot. You mentioned that, meditation became a big part of your routine in terms of kind of helping you like slow down and, and um, you know, make better decisions and that type of thing. So I'd love if you could touch on that a little bit and how that's influenced kind of your, your life. For sure. Well, when, when I was younger, if someone had said, uh, talked about meditation, I'd have laughed and said, you're bloody hippies. <laughs> waste of time. But um, as I was saying before, uh, I kept getting in trouble getting suspended on the field. Football is like, again, like hockey, and I'll keep saying that. Because it's played in a fast, high-intensity environment and things move quickly. The ball moves quickly, bodies move quickly, and you have to make quick decisions. So when I was playing these lockdown roles, I'd often be in uh, physically confronting circumstances, often to my own, you know, I just sort of set them up. But I was constantly reacting poorly out of defense for other people that were coming to, to attack. Not attack, but they might have been trying to stop me from doing my job. And so I'd end up hitting them first or doing something poor and get in trouble. And one day uh, I'd been suspended, I don't know, eight weeks for the second year in a row or something ridiculous. And um, the club were really dirty on me. I was in the leadership group. I was supposed to be a role model. And they said, look, you cannot afford to keep getting suspended. This is, we're going to have to take action otherwise. And so I, I, was, I was distraught. I didn't know what to do. I, I, I swore to them that it was, in, it was an instinct thing. I was just reacting poorly. And so they introduced me to a, a special operations group um, police officer, like SWAT team kind of thing. And uh, I thought he was there to punish me and teach me a lesson, but they, they, there was a method to their madness. And, uh, you know, his job, if you're a special operations copper or a, a SWAT guy, you, when you kick that door in at whatever situation, you have to quickly analyze the whole scenario. You can't shoot everyone just because you're pumped up high on adrenaline. And so these guys train to slow their minds down. So this guy is helping me with that. And he, he suggested... Uh, that I go and learn to meditate for the same reason. So I sort of reluctantly went and found this meditation coach and I, and I learned how to meditate. And it was initially just so that I literally wouldn't hit people out of the ground. <laughs> but what it ended up doing, not only did I stop getting suspended, I was all of a sudden, as I said earlier, I, I did, wasn't a natural football brain and I wasn't naturally highly skillful. But what really compounded the fact that I wasn't um, that skillful was my poor decision-making. And I just thought that was who I was and I wasn't going to be able to get any better. But with the meditation, my mind slowed down, the tunnel vision left, and all of a sudden I could see things that I needed to see. It's like people say Wayne Gretzky could see two or three plays ahead. I used to see half a foot in front of my face. All of a sudden now I could see one play ahead. And with my competitiveness and, and, and work rate, that made me able, gave me the ability to step up my performance. So all of a sudden I had a, a great insight into what meditation can do for, for performance. And so when I speak to corporates now, there's, there's two things. 
that I like to stress with them. One is exactly that. To deal with stress and anxiety, we all know that meditation can help. It's a great way to calm everything down, get some thought and clarity on things and perspective, and hopefully make you feel better about whatever it is. The other part is, though, the performance element, which is often not that understood, well understood, but it can seriously give you a lot more energy, it can seriously give you a lot more clarity in regards to work that you need to do. So now that I'm working in the real world, if I find I'm a bit overwhelmed with workload, I'll go back to my meditation practice, take 10 minutes to myself, slow down, then reset, reapply, re-energize and go again. And it's something that I, yeah, I couldn't push strongly, more strongly enough for guys who have those similar kind of issues, whether they be athletes or, uh, or corporates. You had really strong thoughts before we started the um, this podcast. You know, talking about discipline um, and how you think you know discipline is kind of a myth. I'd love if you could just you know uh, talk a little bit about your thoughts on that and you know your um, emphasis on kind of making the right choices again and again. It wasn't. I mean, being around successful athletes, playing against them. Um, when you play one sport, you meet and, and read and listen to a lot of other sports. And I was always of the same opinion as everyone else that highly successful sports people and I guess even highly successful business people have a huge amount of self-discipline. You know, they make the right decisions, they won't eat the bad food, they'll do the training, they get the right sleep, they don't drink too much. Well, that may be not for sports people. (laughs) I I then read a book late in my career, uh, it was called The One Thing, we can put it on the website, but it makes the point in there that self-discipline is in fact a bit of a myth. Discipline can be completely irrelevant if you can create routines and good habits out of your life. So if you're an athlete and you shouldn't be eating fat and sugar and drinking piss, alcohol, <laughs> you, uh, your best thing is to not wait and decide every single time whether I put sugar in my coffee, whether I put mayonnaise on my sandwich, whether I have the extra beer. You set the standard and the routine and the behavior that I don't put extra sugar in my food, that I don't use butter, I use, I just don't have it on there, or I, um, I won't have chips with my steak. Yeah. And once you realize that there's no decision to be made, it's not about discipline anymore. You just do that. You've set the standard. And that's the same with everything. If you want to go get, to get fit, it's not a matter of, well, I'll start going to the gym. It's a matter of, okay, what is going to require me to get fit? I need to go to the gym four times a week. What days are they going to be? All right, I'm going to go once on the weekend, and then I'm going to go Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And you remain accountable to that. So at the start, it's not a habit, it's a routine. You make that routine habitual by consistently making sure you go and do it one step at a time. I went on Monday, tick it. You know, write it down in a book at the start of the week in your diary. I'm going to go Monday, and I'm going to put a drawer box next to it. And then you get the reward for being able to tick that box. You don't go, you have to cross that box. But only you can hold yourself accountable. And we can talk about later how others can help you with that. But ultimately, it's your decision. But you will find after a certain period of weeks, and they say habits, I've read literature that says, you know, you can form a habit within 28 days. I've said others in 66 days. But anyway, it's between a month and three months of doing the right thing. All of a sudden, you go to the gym four times a week. You don't even question it anymore. That's when you become successful. That's what the top people do. Um, and that's why I constantly say, don't talk about self-discipline with me. Maybe there's a little bit of discipline early, but it's all about habits and choices. So, <laughs> so for a habit like meditation, because that's something that I, you know, want to do more of, right? But I've just I haven't taken that step to say, okay, I'm gonna do it. It's not even a choice. Like, you know, some things like that. Like, if I wanted to get into meditation, for example, what would you say the best way to actually make that a distinctive habit? Like, should I get a coach? What do you think? I tell you what, if if, if people are curious about meditation, so let's take you as an example. If you wanted to get better at it. First thing is, it's one of those things, as we both just mentioned, you have to do consistently. Mm -hmm. Meditation is not a tool that will fix your problems in one go. 
it's something that it, it, it helps you avoid problem issues because you consistently do it and you don't let things get too far out of your control. So that's the first thing. If I don't meditate for a while and something bad happens or I start to get stressed, it's going to take me a few weeks to get back into my practice before yeah. I can alleviate the symptoms. But the, So the key is consistency. Yep. It can be hard, though, if you don't have that guidance. So getting a coach is one thing, but that can be quite expensive. Mm -hmm. I, I found an app last year that is, a, is the perfect starter. It's called Headspace. Okay. I think you can go to headspace.com. And it was an English guy who started it. And his app is brilliant because the first 10 sessions, they're free. The first sort of level is free, level mm -hmm. one. They're all 10 minutes. So if you say to yourself, every day at whatever time, if you're a morning person, evening, I'm going to do this app and you press play. There's some infographic, animated infographics, and then it's a guided meditation. And he's, a really, he's just a normal guy that talks you through it. You get through every day, 10 days. That's 10 days you've just done. Then takes you to level two. That's 15 minutes. Not much out of your day. You do that. That's 20 days. Then there's level three is 20 minutes. If you can get through the three levels, after that, you'll be a master. And if you wanted to get better, go get the coach. It's worth the investment. Yeah. But I, I found that was a fantastic introductory tool for people to get some insight as to what meditation can do for them with very little cost. Okay, let's dig into travel because I know travel is a big thing that you're super passionate about. Like, you know, you're, uh, we were just talking about your website that you're going to launch um, related to, you know, helping people find um, great trips and, and um, different, different travel experiences, that type of thing. And I know that was a big thing for you in terms of finding balance. So I'd love, like, maybe you talk a little bit about uh some of your favorite places that you've been and, and kind of how you see travel as you know, a really important thing for finding balance in your life. Yeah, um, I guess, I mean, travel for one is fun. Everyone knows <laughs> that. You don't have a bad, you can have bad experiences, but you never have a bad time overall. But my reason for traveling was never that. Uh, mine was, as I explained earlier, Melbourne is like the mecca for football, like Toronto is the mecca for hockey. And having been born and bred there, if I never left the city, at the end of every season, my season never ended. I'd never recharge. And I knew for me, whether it was finding time to myself during the week, whether it was finding quiet time to get a coffee during the training day, I needed quiet time to refresh and re-energize. So the best way I could do that was traveling. And so every off season, we'd get six to eight weeks off. I'd be in another part of the world. I was in Southeast Asia, Europe, South America, I was in Africa, everywhere, just so I could get that re-energized, you know, have the fun, but have take that time to re-energize to start the year again. So when I came back day one for pre-season training, I was refreshed and ready to hit the ground running. So it was more just, it was, wasn't just a, you know, fun thing to do. It was something that I knew was really, really important to me. And since retiring, the first thing I did after I retired was just, I packed up my house, I rented it out, took all like two bags with me and I traveled with my girlfriend for six months, just doing all the things I was free for the first time. And it just gave me time to have some more perspective on what I achieved and what I wanted to do next. And then when I came to Toronto, I was able to be exactly that refreshed and ready to start the next part of my career. So it's, it's difficult, more difficult in Canada because um, you guys seem to have more of a North American attitude, especially in regards to a lot of workplaces won't give you as much flexibility to take that time. In Australia, you can get unpaid leave with a drop of a hat in most industries. Hmm. So most Aussies will take, you know, eight weeks off a year if they can. Um, part of it unpaid, but, you know, some paid leave. Uh, but the other thing Aussies will do is either while they're studying their degrees or just afterwards, most Aussies will at least take six to 12 months to go and travel and to get that perspective, gain new insights and recharge and re-energize. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not frowned upon. Um, I've met a lot more. Canada's not like America. America's the hardest one. 
I met a lot more young Americans on my last travels around Central and South America who I think because the job market was pretty poor just realized, you know what, stuff that I want to travel. And you'd be amazed at how many of them all said the same thing. My friends thought I was crazy, man. You're like, you know, here I am going away for two months. And we're like, oh, yeah, two months. That's bloody cute. But, they're, they're, you know, they're, the, they're the, um, the pioneers amongst their friendship group. That takes courage. But I have no doubt that it will give them such a better perspective when they go back home to what it is they want to do next rather than going through the grind, high school, college, job, family, death. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny. I'm starting to kind of feel in my – in my routine, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm coming off of the holidays and whatever. I'm like, oh, got to get back to work. But I'm kind of feeling like, I don't know, I, got, I have the travel bug, right? I just, I'm ready for kind of that recharge just to be be free of all kind of responsibilities and think creatively and, you know, see, be inspired by new places and stuff like that. And I'm just kind of like, man, what I would do, what I would do to get away for six months, right? But that's, uh, yeah, to your point about, you know, the, uh, the paid leave, that's not exactly <laughs> something we can do as easily, that easy, that's yeah. for sure. But so let, actually, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, you've lived in Canada now for how long has it been? Seven or eight months. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the funniest things, I mean, literally, as soon as I met you, I felt like I've known you forever. Like, it's so funny, the parallels between Australians and Canadians. Like, tell me a little bit about that and just like what you've seen from like the differences and maybe the similarities between Canadian and Australian culture. Well, first of all, you'd think that English across the world would be similar. Not true. No one here understands a bloody thing I'm saying. And as I speak, I know I speak fast, so I do apologize if you're struggling to understand me. I learned early days you can slow things down with technology. It might help to understand me. Um, So that was the first one. But no, my my friends at home constantly ask now that I've been away for eight months or whatever from home. um, They say, you know, how you going, mate? You're missing home. And of course, I tell them in obligatory, yeah, of course, I miss you, mate. But to be honest, I feel very, very at home over here. Um, the cities are very similar. It's about sports, it's about social interaction, good food, good drinks. But culturally too, I, I think we share a lot. Um, it, we have a lot in common. The thing I think that's made me assimilate, um, I think somewhat well here, at least quickly, uh, two things, being involved in a, a professional sport. And you know what? Being involved in any sports team, it teaches you one thing. Life, make, to make friends, don't make it about you. Be interested, don't be interesting. Now, I could, I could talk anyone's ear off. I love telling stories. I'm all about <laughs> storytelling. And anyone who knows an Aussie knows that we love to tell bloody yarns. But it's not about it's not about me speaking. The absolute key to integration of building friendships or relationships or networking, for one thing, is asking questions. And maybe networking is probably the best way to direct this answer so it's relevant to other people. But I used to, if I ever met anyone interesting in the corporate world and we got access to the good people when we were when I was an athlete, I'd take their card and say, hey, if you don't mind, I'd love to you know, buy you a beer or a coffee just to pick your brain on how you got to where you are. And so I'd get them for an hour. You know, a meeting is always an hour. They'd be sitting over a coffee and I would try and spend 45 to 50 minutes asking them questions. Yep. How did you get to where you got? What did you study? Let me go back again. Where did you grow up? What, do you, like, what things do you value most? What do you do with your spare time? Yep. I wouldn't have it written down in a book. I'd make it an informal conversation, but I would take as much interest in them as I could. Every single time without doubt, the last 10 or 15 minutes, which would be a little bit about me, would be so impassioned by them because they thought I was the interesting one because I'd listened to them the whole time. And successful people always want to, one, tell their story, and two, they often want to help people out, but the best way to do that is to build the rapport by listening. I love this quote, and I don't know who said it, but it's, you don't learn anything from talking, and it's 100% true. Talking teaches you nothing. 
listening is where you're going to learn. So that's been something that I, I've really loved meeting on you, know, you guys and your friendship group, Chrissy's friends and family, because you've all got interesting stories that I don't know. And then that later on has given me time to reciprocate with some of mine. And uh, yeah, I feel very much at home, I think, because now we have shared experiences. I know whose values are similar. I know whose jokes are similar. And I know which people to avoid because they don't understand me or they hate swearing, which is <laughs> two <laughs> things that come to the fore when you're dealing with an Aussie. <laughs> no, it's so funny. Like, I mean, that's... Uh... That's so key. Even for, for my day-to-day with sales, that's the most important thing to do is to ask good questions, right? And that's honestly the best thing about this podcast, to your point, is, I mean, just talking to interesting people like yourself and sitting down for an hour, like a lot of the stuff about your career, you know, even since we met, didn't know any of that. But it's so it's so fun to just be able to, kind of, you know, talk to people with really specific subject matter expertise. And, and that's why we started this, you know, podcast, right? It's such a fun thing to do and to, you know, to meet new people and um, really try to put, you know, package a lot of this stuff that the best stuff that you've learned in your career and package that up in, you know, in the posts that we will and, um, and make that into something that other people can learn from and, and engage with, right? So I want to tie that down to leadership as kind of our last key topic, because I know that's definitely you know, core strength of yours and something um, that I pride myself a lot in that we, you know, we like to talk about a lot on this podcast. Um, for anyone who's listening, as a uh, next one to listen to after this, go back to, I think it was our fourth episode, which was why you need to design your startup like a sports team. Um, so many good parallels between sports and business. Um, so I'd love if we could talk about, you know, the Richmond Tigers, because it was really interesting what you were saying with the club culture that you guys had. I think that's so so amazing you know the playing for playing for the logo on the front rather than the name on the back right like that's some that's something that i you know just naturally growing up playing team sports um i live and die by that kind of mantra right so tell me about what that was all about for you guys as a team yeah um this would be a good one we'll have tons tons to chat about yeah something i have a lot of passion about club club and organizational culture and i'll tell you why our ceo of the football club once was having a conversation with me and he said the only thing we can compete on in our sport is our is our people it's our it's our organizational culture and he went further to say every club in our league and same as some of the leagues here like the hockey has a salary cap you cannot buy more talent now in the corporate world some companies can afford to buy more talent but that doesn't guarantee success and it definitely in the sports world is about getting the most out of that talent and i first between 2003, when I was drafted, and 2009, my team sucked. No playoffs <laughs> appearances, finished on the bottom of the ladder two or three times, laughing stock for a club that was one of the, you know, it was the Maple Leafs back in its day. It was a wow. powerhouse club, but we hadn't had any success for a long time. And we used to have things written on the wall, trademarks. Uh, one was, one I think was HURT, which was an acronym for Honesty, United, and I can't even remember the R and the T. Right. And I remember one day at the end of 2009, at the end of one of our coaches' tenures, he was going on about how we, uh, we're united. And one of the young guys in his first year put his hand up and he said, I want to say something about that. And young guys in sports teams never say anything. <laughs> and he said, he said boldly in front of senior players, in front of, in front of everyone, he goes, I think the fact that we talk about united is a joke. We're not effing united. And let me tell you why. And he pointed out one of the other new guys in his first season who'd just gone and done his ACL and had surgery the week before. And this guy was from another city, from a different province, state. And he had no friends or family in the city outside of the football team. And this guy that had stood up to make this statement told a story about how this teammate of ours had been in hospital for two days 
No one had come and visited him. He got a handful of text messages. He'd sat in hospital by himself. And he said, you want to tell me where United? He said, you guys can go and get. Wow. And that just it left me gobsmacked. And of course, some of the senior players just didn't get it. They're like, oh, yeah, who are you to stand up and say that? Whatever. Yeah. But then we got a new coach the next year. And the first thing he said to us in our first meeting in 2000, start of 2010 preseason, he goes, oh, we are going to build this club on culture. We are only going to have people of good character. And I don't care how talented you are. If, you don't, if you're not a person of good character and you don't fit into our culture and you're going to want to hurt our family name, which is what he talked about, our club was a family and everything you did impacted it, you can get stuff. We don't want you. And he mm-hmm. held true to his word. He kicked out some talented players because they just didn't fit the values and whatever that we had set. So we went about in introducing a new trademark and, um, and values and, and behaviours and stuff. And what we came down to, there was uh, the leadership group and a few other senior players, about eight of us, out of a club of 45. We went down and we worked out that the thing that our club resonated with most was our jersey, which we call our jumper. Why? Because it was one of the oldest jerseys in the league, about 150 years old. Because our sport's one of the oldest. And it had never changed. It's black with a yellow sash from the left shoulder down to the bottom right here. And so, and we were a powerhouse club. It, it had just emboldened respect. It emboldened uh, loyalty. It emboldened so many things that unfortunately we hadn't been able to attain in the previous, what, 10 years. But underneath that, we decided, if, all right, if this is what we're going to do, we're going to have pride and respect in our jumper. That was our trademark. We needed to have behaviours that people could live up to. And so they started with discipline, desperate, belief, and awareness. And they were the words that we used in everything we did. And that wasn't just on the field, it was also off the field. So on the field, are you disciplined enough to do the team thing? Are you disciplined enough to run defensively, to tackle someone, and then have to get up and tackle them again? Don't worry about scoring goals, it's the discipline to do those hard things. Are you desperate enough to work the hardest in the gym to get bigger and stronger or to come back from injury? Um, The awareness one was a huge one, given the story I just told about the guy about the United and stuff. You know, we would pride ourselves on if someone did have to go to hospital, nearly everyone would go and visit him. You'd at least get phone calls and text messages. If a new guy moved from interstate, you'd take him out for lunch or you'd put, put him up in your house for a while. Yep. Are you aware of where your teammates are at? And belief was the last one, which seemed odd at the time, but we'd been so beaten down over the last few years that we needed to instill that back into our club. So we spoke about everything we do, we do with the belief that we are going to succeed and be great one day. And so it was on PowerPoint slides, it was referred to in meetings and in emails. You know, we would ask weekly, hey, who wants to give an example of discipline? Someone would put their hand up and say, oh, so-and-so, one of the players was out on Saturday night, he realised that it was getting a bit late, so he said he needs to go home, which he, this guy likes to party, so that was a big call for him, you know, he was self-disciplined enough to go back. Um, and, you know, things like that. So it became so much a part of our culture that everything we did reverted back to our jumper, to the point that... You know, we created these roots, uh, these these habits or these traditions that you never got to wear the jersey except on game day. If you never made it to the senior side, you never wore it. When you did play, it would be hanging on your locker, and at the end of the game, you would hand it back to the property guy. You'd never ever let the jumper hit the ground. And guys would celebrate after we kicking a big clutch goal by using, you know, grabbing their their jersey um, on their chest and clenching it. You know, that's how much much it meant to them, showing that that's what they were playing for. So we embodied a culture of success into the club and that was the standard if you didn't want to meet the standard you didn't play and again and again that was upheld and since then we've played regular playoffs we haven't had a huge amount of success in them but the club is building and it it comes down 100 percent to that not to any individual talented player collectively these guys have bought into something so to take that to the corporate world you've got to think to yourself 
is there anything written on our walls? And so often there is, and you may or may not know what it is, but that's irrelevant. The important thing is, does it give you an emotional feeling? Do you have an attachment to those words on the wall? And if not, right, what more can we be doing to bring those to life? And if they're not the right words, well, then you need to have a conversation around what do we really stand for? What do we want to stand for? What do we want to portray? Set that up and then live to it because it does make a big impact. Hell yeah, buddy. Love that. That's, uh, that's beautiful. Um, such good lessons there. I think maybe we can end off with some of your best recommendations on, like you mentioned, you know, the, the one thing, Headspace. I know you're really passionate about you know, a couple of good TED Talks and stuff, but for someone who's um, you know, kind of looking, making their way in the business world or uh, you know, trying to kind of improve their personal productivity and wellness, that type of thing, maybe some of the best recommendations you would have for yeah, things to read or check out. Um, yeah, I tell you what, I've got a list, so if I don't name off any now, we'll definitely put it up on the, on the blog, but, um, I guess my ultimate tip to people, and this is probably my main driver, and I did some work with a guy, I sort of engaged a, a personal career coach to help me sort out while I was playing what I wanted to do later on, yep. and my key thing is that I pride myself where I just, I live my life about being curious, I always want to learn more, so I carry notebooks everywhere, and if someone suggests you should read this book. I write it down. I go get the book on my iPad, on my Kindle. I read the book. If someone says it's a YouTube talk, then I write it down. And just constantly looking to find new information. And not everything's a bit of gold. I'm like shit out there. Um, <laughs> but more often than not, you'll find it. And so when you're reading something on your Kindle or your book, I always have a highlighter as well. Highlight what it is that you need to remember. So it's there for later on as a reference. Um, but if I was going to name my top books to read. So the one thing is a good one. That was um, by Keller and Papasan or something, that's only a couple of years old, mm -hmm. and that's about prioritizing. That's that habit conversation we were talking about earlier. That's a really good one. For those in leadership positions, there's a great book called Crucial Conversations, and that's a book about really making sure you're 100% on top of your ability to communicate. Because a lot of people don't realize that when they get into conflict, it's often on their end that they've got, maybe they've got a preconceived idea about a person, that they're, they're telling a story about why this situation is what it is in their own head, versus stepping back and saying, right, hold on, is this me that has a prejudice and am I conveying or purveying the, the, the environment or the emotion in this conversation? So it's about saying, right, what do I want to achieve? What do they want to achieve? What do we collectively want to achieve? And it's about how you can go and get it. So I think that's a really good one for nice. leaders. One of my favorite books, is again, in the corporate side is a book called Legacy. And it's based on the uh, New Zealand All Blacks rugby union side and they are I think statistically the greatest sports side, one of the greatest sports team international sports teams in the world they've won that many games you know their win-loss ratio yeah. and this is this fantastic business book about why that is and a lot of it comes down to culture and the fact that every one of those players similar to our story about our jumper takes pride in making sure that when they leave the All Blacks they've left it in a better place they want to leave a legacy and it's a word that corporate People use a lot that managers and CEOs and execs use. They want to leave their legacy. But the All Blacks don't want to care so much about their individual legacy. They want their legacy for the team to be left behind. And that's where I reckon this, the corporate world can take a note. Don't worry about your legacy. Worry about the legacy your company has because of your work. But yeah, it's a fantastic anecdotes from the sports world, but specifically tied into um, the corporate world for leadership stuff. So there are probably some really good business ones that I recommend some more. My, some of my personal favourites, there's a, really, it's a, it's a book by a, um, a philosopher, a Roman statesman from... Oh, 
a long time ago, let's say. <laughs> it's by the philosopher's name is Seneca, and the book is Letters from a Stoic. And this statesman slash philosopher, it's a collection of his letters to his, I think, cousin or nephew. I forget that guy's name. But every chapter is a life lesson. And so let's say it's from the 1400s or 1300s or whenever the Roman times were. It, might, yeah. it could be BC, AC, <laughs> God knows. Um, every every letter has this, and not, not all, every chapter is not outstanding, but a lot of, especially the first ones, phenomenal how the lessons that they were struggling with back then about how much is enough. What do you need to make you happy? And so I remember reading this book once just randomly because I found it, maybe someone recommended it, and I'd never read any philosophy before. I realized it wasn't philosophy. It was philosophical by nature, but it was it was a book that was shared, um, was developed around these letters that once were written. And this gave me some great insights into back then, but also some perspective on today. So that's one of my favorites. And then the other one would have to be probably... Actually, two weird ones. I'll go the less weird one first, sorry. <laughs> Victor Frankl's um, Man's Search for Meaning. Victor Frankl being the Austrian psychologist who was Jewish and got caught in a concentration camp in World War II, lost all his family, but kept himself alive through having meaning. And his meaning was to share what he developed, his psychological theory around, I forget what it's called, but it's basically around finding meaning in your life. Uh, and that's the first chapter is about his, the first half is about his story, which is just, it's phenomenal with all, all the negative reasons, but it's just insight. And then the second part is the breakdown of his theory around what he learned. And that, again, just adds perspective on, you know, the real issues in life. Um, it's definitely worth reading. It's not very long. And the other one, the other weird one, again, and I have some weird shit in my top three, I know, is, is, a, is a poet slash writer called Khalid Gibran and his book is called oh what's it called it'll come back to me we'll have to add it to yeah, the we'll list get, but yeah, it's we'll about again every chapter is about something to do with life and it basically it's a story about a, a prophet who lives in a village and then he's about to leave the village and so everyone asks all the villagers are so sad that he's leaving because he's given them this great advice over the years so every question is a chapter that is then answered so what is it what is the secret of hard work why is love and family important? And again, these are just really crazy books you can pick up. You may not like them, but you know, rather than recommending top 10 things, just could throw you a few curveballs. And if you like them, you like them. If you don't, I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. The, uh, the Victor Frankl one is one that um, one of, actually my co-founder at Huntercraft spoke very highly of and it said it literally completely changed his life and the way he thinks about it. So that's a, that's a really good recommendation. Um, if people want to find you online, what's the best way to do that? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Instagram, that's an easy one, Dan Jackson 23 Oh, sorry, Twitter, but anyway, they're both the same hashtag. Uh, I do have a website called Open Minded World that I've been tinkering with for a while, but kind of um, a little bit reluctant to put up for the, I oh, know if it starts I'm gonna, to go I'm going to help you out. We're gonna, I'm going to help you out. We're going to get it up. Is that accountability thing that I keep <laughs> yeah, speaking exactly. about? I've got to be accountability to myself. But, um, Just got to get started. Once that's up, I'd, I'd be real keen to share it with you guys and hopefully reciprocate. Maybe we can put some of your stuff up on there and share some people. But um, yeah, if anyone wants to follow any of my stuff, that's probably the easiest Twitter. Um, I'm not super active, but there's a lot of background and then we can just take it from there. That's a wrap on another episode of Hunter and Craft Radio. I want to thank Jacko for coming on the show. That was a really fun interview. You can tell the man's done a couple interviews in his life. Very well spoken, very inspirational, and uh, a lot of great stories in there. 
Make sure you keep in touch with Dan on Twitter and Instagram at DanJackson23. Keep up with his antics on there. And in terms of Hunter and Craft, we've actually just started putting out a weekly curated digest of content uh, with you know five or six posts that we're reading throughout the week. It's called The Bullet, and I uh, want to make sure that you guys sign up for that. Keep in touch with us because we've got a lot of great posts coming um, here in 2016, and don't want you to miss them. Until next time, have a great one.